Good morning. It's so good to see you all. My name is Adam Caldwell. If we've never met before, um, I had the privilege of being one of the associate pastors here at Salem from 2010 to 2015. So it's been almost almost five years. I'll pay you later, Joe. Uh, it's been almost five years since, uh, if you're keeping track, since I cut my hair. So uh, <laughs> there's that that's going on. Let me ask you, if you are a parent with kids, what is the best time of the year? August, middle of August, right? When school starts. Yes, that is the best time of the year if you're a parent with kids. If you are a parent with kids, um, elementary and down or young kids, what is the worst time of the year? May 22nd. We have a very distinct (laughs) day over here. Now, this is what we call um, a setup. Because the worst day of the year for a parent is daylight savings time. Thank you. Can I get an amen on that one? That is the worst day of the year if you have kids um, and they're trying to get their sleep rhythms. Patterns for us as human beings and rhythms for us are incredibly important for our well-being. Agreed? Agreed. So how we set up our lives and how we go about living is important that we kind of, we get those patterns set in place. And here's the reason why. 80% of what you do on a daily basis is subconscious. 80%, that means that you are just on autopilot doing what you do 80% of the time. How many of you on a Saturday morning have, have realized you needed to go to the store and you got in your car and you started to drive and you realized you ended up at work? You turned that way, you figured it out, and then you, then you course directed, right? That's because 80% of what you do is subconscious. So here's the trick, and here's, here's what I want you to wrestle with this morning. And here's why it's important um, to wrestle with this idea of fumes is, have you set your life up in the patterns that it needs to be, knowing that 80% of what you do is subconscious? Have you set your patterns and, and the way that you go about living life in a way that is not only healthy for you and your family, but also your community? That's what we really want to wrestle with. This morning, so we're in the middle of a, a sermon series. This is the third week. Um, how many of you, be honest, are running on fumes? I I can tell you this morning. Uh, we have a little gathering time. Nick does this. It's great. We get to meet people who are serving here at Salem prior to the worship service. First thing I said is this morning I'm going to be a hypocrite because I'm going to talk about running on fumes while running on fumes. <laughs> Yay! So I get it. Trust me, I get it. I get the day-to-day activity of life can be very daunting, can be overwhelming. But we've got to, as individuals, as families, and as a community of faith, figure out healthy patterns in our life that not only reflect, reflect who Christ wants us to be, 
but also reflect who Christ wants us, what Christ wants us to do in changing the world. Boy, I fumbled through that, didn't I? We want to create patterns that reflect not only who Christ wants us to be, but also what Christ wants us to do in transforming and changing the world. So, we're going to wrestle with three questions this morning. The first one is this, who are you? Who are you? Second question is this, what do you do? Third question is this, why do you do it? Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? Will you pray with me this morning? Gracious God, we give you thanks for this opportunity to come to your house. To come to this space that has been set aside for the worship of you. God, it is so important that we do not forsake these rhythms, these patterns in our lives that transform us so that we can transform the world. Be on our lips this morning. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let me ask you a question. How many of you enjoy reading the Old Testament? Uh, <laughs> good question. Which part? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, very few of us enjoy reading the Old Testament. Tell me, when was the last time you dug into Leviticus? In case you didn't know, that's one of the first five books of the Bible. <laughs> What Leviticus is, what Deuteronomy is, and, and what, to a certain extent what Exodus is, it's, it's a litany of do's and don'ts. And what God is trying to do in the midst of those books is shape culture. So let me remind you of the story of the Old Testament and the story of the Israelites. The, the Israelites, does anybody know this, were enslaved in Egypt for how long? 400 years, okay? That means, what does that mean? That means that a, a people group had been enculturated with a slavery mentality for a very, very long time. Now, what do you think it would take to break the habits of those generational patterns that happen over and over and over again. Are we going to just be able to go in overnight and say, hey, do things differently? No. And God saw this, and God realized that in the shaping of God's people, certain parameters had to be put in place so that they could fully, not only just intellectually understand what it meant to be a child of God, who they were, but also physically in the living out of their patterns and the daily habits of their life, so they could feel what it was like to seek justice and righteousness in God's world. And so that's exactly what we see in the Old Testament. Now, granted, there are times where it moves from narrative, which is much easier to read, right? We all love books. Well, <laughs> you might not all love books. I love books, and I love narratives. I love stories. But there are times where the Old Testament moves more into a litany of do this and, and don't do that. And, and digging into those 
helps us understand what God was trying to accomplish in forming and shaping those people. So, when we talk about Sabbath, if you were here the past two weeks, Tim mentioned Sabbath multiple, multiple times. And, and Tim is correct. Sabbath, the best we can translate it is, does anybody remember? Rest. Right. So really the past two weeks, Tim has focused more on the, the individualization of Sabbath for your life. And that is incredibly important. Because if you do not buy into Sabbath for your life, then honestly, collectively, we cannot buy into a new culture, a new way of doing things. But there are actually three components to Sabbath. I find this very interesting. And they all revolve around the pattern of seven. Why do you think that is the case? Most likely because in the creation story, in the creation myth, the pattern of God creating the first six days and then God rests on the seventh day. So that's what we see in here. So there's three types of Sabbath. Did you know that? Three types of Sabbath in the Old Testament. The first one is this, the seventh day of the week. We are called to rest. And it's interesting in the Old Testament that the writers of the Old Testament did not, I'm going to get a little technical with you here, so bear with me, did not put a definite article in front of the word Sabbath. So it's never the Sabbath. It is Sabbath. And so what they're trying to get us to understand is every single week, every seventh day, we are to orient ourselves into patterns of rest. It is Sabbath living, if you will. The second type of Sabbath is, is I find very interesting. It really revolves around um, the agricultural year. So they were ordered in the Old Testament to plant for six years in a row. And on the seventh year, they were ordered to allow the ground to rest. Now, those of you who are in agriculture understand why this is the case. The ground needs time to replenish, to replenish itself of the nutrients that it needs in order for it to be productive, in order for it to produce at a level that would feed the nation. So, the seventh year was the year of rest and freedom. Not only was the land supposed to rest, I find this fascinating, not only was the land supposed to rest, but on the seventh year, guess who was to be set free? Debtors, slaves. They were to be set free from their indenturedness. Not only were they to be set free from their indenturedness, they were also, God commanded, give them provision so that they can start over and not necessarily find themselves back in the place that they were in. Isn't that fascinating? So not only is there an individualization, because our tendency in our culture, and I get this because I, I, I live it on a day-to-day -day basis, we run around, we're frenzied, we're hurried, we're running around, we're frenzied, we're hurried, and then we, 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 we grab onto the idea of, oh yes, I need a vacation. 
And that's what we begin to wrap our mind around in our understanding of Sabbath is somehow this personal vacation for you. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that going on vacation is a bad thing. We all need to go on vacation. We all need to unplug. We all need to get away from it all at times. But what I'm trying to do is to give you a deeper, more holistic understanding of what God means by Sabbath living. It's much more deep than just simply going on vacation. The third one for Sabbath. Now, scholars actually argue as to whether this took place in reality or not. But it is kind of a beautiful ideal whether it actually took place or not. So, stay with me. Seven times seven years. Okay? So we've got three different cycles here. First cycle is the seventh day. Second cycle is the seventh year. And then expand that out seven times the seventh year. Okay? This is what the Israelites would call Jubilee year. And Jubilee is probably the epitome of what it means to live a Sabbath life. Hear these words. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This comes from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. When Jesus starts his ministry, and he actually goes back to his hometown of Galilee, and he sits down in the temple, and, and he has his, his pick of any passage to read with, through, the, through the Hebrew Bible. He can, he can pick whatever he wants at this point, right? He pulls out the Isaiah scroll, and he's sitting in the temple because the teachers always sat in the temple. I'm just fidgety. If I sit, I'll lose my mind. Thank you for not laughing. Okay. The one passage that Jesus chose to talk about to his hometown was this Isaiah passage. And here's the translation of it from Luke. It says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is Jubilee year. It is the year where the, the slate is wiped completely clean, where everybody gets to start on even ground, where debts are forgiven, where captives are set free, where the blind begin to see. It is the alignment of heaven to earth, where justice and righteousness reign supreme. You're beginning to see what Sabbath is for us as a people, as Christians. It is much bigger and much broader than you and I as individuals. It is a calling as a people group to align ourselves individually and as a group to bring about jubilee on God's earth. 
That's deep, y'all. I moved from Ohio to Florida when I was 15. I learned very quickly that the plural of y'all is all y'all. That's deep, all y'all. This is more than just taking a nap on a Sunday afternoon. Although I encourage you, take a nap on a Sunday afternoon. It's bigger than that. Hear these words from Dr. Oliver J. or Olive, excuse me, Olive J. Hemmings. He he's a, a, an Old Testament professor. He says this. Close reading of the fourth commandment in both the Exodus 28 through 11 and Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15 versions indicates that Sabbath is about solidarity in community. Everyone must rest, including the livestock and the slave. The Exodus version reminds Israel that all creation comes from one, the oneness of God. And the Deuteronomy version reminds Israel that they were slaves in Egypt. They were once outcasts on the margins of society. It is a comprehensive call for solidarity to do to others as you would have them do to you. So if you recall last week, Tim talked about the disciples rubbing the wheat between their fingers and and, and the um, Pharisees saw this, and they considered it threshing the wheat. So the disciples were actually working on that, on that Sabbath day. Now, some of us would see that, and, and we'd think that's absurd, but um, that, that's what they thought. And Jesus' response is very, very curious. Jesus' response to the Pharisees was to cite them a, a, a passage from Hosea, Chapter 6, verse 6. And the Pharisees would have known this very well. And Hosea 6, 6 says this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now the Old Testament word for mercy is hesed. Do any of you do like a word a year? Have a focus on a word a year? Am I the only nerd that does a focus on a word a year. This next quarter is going to go by quickly. I want to encourage you this morning, if you pick a word for next year, pick Hesed. Really live with Hesed for a while. Now we translate it as mercy. I'm going to I'm going to go down the the, the rabbit hole here for a second. I know none of you are surprised. We translate it as mercy. Hesed, if we were to translate it directly, it would mean steadfast love. Steadfast love. And, and next level, for those of you who forget what steadfast means, steadfast means firmly fixed in place, immovable. Now, Unfortunately, I'm not home every single night to put my kids to bed with my wife. There are times that I just, like you, have to work late. But when I am, 
and I have the opportunity to go pray over my kids, this is the prayer that I say every single night. I thank God for the gift of their life, and then I try to pray in attributes that um, I believe the Bible thinks are important and I think are important into their lives to speak things into their being, if you will. And one of the things that I speak into their being is, God, thank you for giving them the gift of persistence. And then I wake up every single morning and lament that I prayed that prayer. There is probably... One, if we were to boil down the attributes of what it takes for somebody to be successful, and we boiled it down to one thing, what do you think it is? Persistence. Grit. Fortitude. The ability that even when you get shot down, you rise back up and you try again. That's this kind of love. That's steadfast love. That's the love my pastor in Kentucky used to say, I love you and there ain't nothing you can do about it kind of love. That's love that breaks down barriers and walls and finds ways towards equity for all. That kind of love. Now, I, I promise you this was not planned. I had no idea that Scott was going to be here this morning, so take that with a grain of salt. Um, I, I serve on the board of LifeWise, so full, full disclosure. Um, but I am so invested in the programming and the vision that LifeWise has to narrowing, narrowing the socioeconomic playing field here in St. Louis. I think it's incredibly important that we work towards that end. Now, that is not an easy thing to do. That's what we call a BHAG. Anybody know what a BHAG is? Say it. Big, hairy, audacious goal. Why it has to be hairy, I don't know. One of the things that Scott and I are kicking around in our head, because we believe that the, the kind of main pathway to be able to do this is generational wealth and generational wealth building. And so we are trying to figure out ways that we can empower people, put them on a path towards success, but also put them in positions to where generation after generation after generation can benefit from that, that wealth building. So here's, what I, here, here's our next big idea, and I'm, um, anybody a fan of Seth Godin? Anybody know who Seth, Seth Godin is? He's, he's a bald-headed guy. He's in business. He wears crazy glasses. Um, his big thing is for entrepreneurs and anybody trying to start something new is to just step. You're never going to figure it all out. You're never going to figure out the mechanics. Sometimes you just have to step, take a leap of faith, and, and figure it out as you go. So I'm, I'm stepping out here. I'm taking a leap of faith, and I'm figuring it out as, as we go. Uh, one of the things I've learned in my new profession is that... Um, there are not a lot of investment vehicles that can spring up a bunch of wealth in one generation. There just, there just aren't. One of the traditional ways of wealth building has been home ownership. Right? So you buy an asset, you buy, you buy a home. Some of you are going to get really bored with this, but stay with me. <laughs> you buy an asset, you buy a home, 
Um, it forces you, if you have a mortgage, to put equity into the home because you have to make that payment every single month or else you lose your house. There's a couple of problems with that, and I would never tell somebody not to go buy a house. Please don't hear me saying that. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But a couple of problems with that. When you find yourself in a position um, that you are underserved and, and you don't have cash flow and all that other stuff, there are things that can crop up that can derail that particular plan, yes? What happens if the roof goes out and you don't have insurance? You don't have the cash flow to pay for that. Not only that, take it to the next generation. How do you realize that asset? How do you get the cash out? You have to sell it. So what if the next generation decides, you know what, this is a place for us to live, and they don't actually realize the gain and, and move into that, that next phase of, of generational wealth building? So what we want to do is to create a pathway for donors to give to LifeWise that will empower the folks who are in the program, stay with me, to pay for life insurance premiums. Sounds weird. Life insurance premiums to work with an attorney to put together trusts for the family so that when that wealth is realized, because believe me, it's the only asset, the only vehicle that can spring up a bunch of asset in one generation, that can work with those attorneys to set up those trusts so that those assets are dolled out in a purposeful, meaningful way for that particular family. Why am I telling you all of this? Sabbath, rhythm, Sabbath, living. If part of our role and our goal as Christians is to create transformation in the world, we as individuals have to figure out how to leverage what we do on a day-to-day -day basis instead of just waking up, going about our business, driving to work, making the cup of coffee, being the employee. We have to figure out creative ways to leverage what we already do to make a difference in the world. That's what I want to invite you to this morning. I want to invite you into a mind frame and a, a mindset of Sabbath living, which calls us as God's people, as individuals, to align with God's justice, God's mercy, God's steadfast love with the grit to move forward no matter what gets in our way to make a difference in St. Louis. That's what I want to invite you to this morning. So who are you? If you claim to be a Jesus follower, if you claim to be a Christian, then you are claiming to be called by God to do something. And Sabbath is rest, but if it doesn't align with your day-to-day -day activities of doing, you will never ultimately feel rest. What do you do? You know what I find interesting? It's interesting that when Jesus called the disciples... He didn't tell them to stop doing what they did for a living. 
Now, ultimately, some of them went out on mission trips, and they went out, and they, and they took a sabbatical for what they did on a daily basis. But Matthew, does anybody remember what Matthew was? He's a tax collector. Zacchaeus, another tax collector. And when Jesus enters into their lives, he doesn't say, hey, stop being a tax collector. He says, hey, how can you leverage being a tax collector for the kingdom? For helping people be life-wise. So what do you do? Whatever it is, whatever it is, leverage it for God's kingdom. Why do you do it? So if, if, if you're sitting there and you're realizing, man, I, I haven't given much thought to this. I've just been kind of living in the 80% of I just wake up and do, and I wake up and do, and I, it's, frankly, it's, it's really getting me exhausted right now. <laughs> Maybe it's because you haven't evaluated and really dug into the why of what you do. Because there, I can guarantee it, there is a flip inside of you that if you reorient your why, even if what you do remains the same, you'll have more energy. You will have more capacity. You will be invigorated more to accomplish what God is calling you to do on a daily basis if you can reorient that why. So here's, here's my, my give. Let's get coffee. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about why you do what you do and how we can begin to leverage it to transform specifically the city of St. Louis. Thank you. Because here's the thing. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm tired of talking about this stuff. And I'm, I'm ready to, to do something. I don't know about you, but I'm, uh, we've been living in this church world for how long now? And, I, and, and I'm ready to do something. So if you're ready to do something with me, let's go get coffee. I'll pay for it. How about that? It's real generous on my part, I know. Can you imagine with me? Just think about this. There's 150 people in this room. If, if we were reporting to the conference, we'd probably say 175, Deb, right? <laughs> Pastors are, are gifted with hyperbole. <laughs> if the 150 of us in this room could reorient our why we do what we do and leverage what we do on a daily basis, imagine the impact that we could make for our city. Imagine the impact that we could make for our region. Imagine the impact that we could make for our country. And dare I say it, imagine the impact we could make to this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.